presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. You know, one of the things that we used to do uh, when our kids were small is that we used to uh, go out and uh, instead of buying a tree, of course, we just couldn't afford to buy a tree back in those days, but uh, we would go out and we would cut a cedar tree and, you know, bring it to the house. Carol would, uh, would generally stay home and she'd, uh, she'd make some cider and stuff like that, and the kids would pile up in the back of the pickup truck and we'd just start cruising around the property and a lot of times over on our neighbor's property. We had a good relationship with them, so they didn't mind. And we'd find just exactly the right cedar tree and, you know, we'd cut it down and then bring it home. And I had a big old long stick that was just the right uh, length so that it would, it would fit where we always put the Christmas tree. And then I could put the stick up next to the tree and take the chainsaw and cut the tree off the right length and, you know, put the little stand on it and do all those kinds of things. But uh, probably one of, the, one of the Christmases that our kids remember better than any of the others is the Christmas that we did that, uh, just as I described, and about three days after we brought the tree in the house, got it all decorated, uh, we started noticing that there was a red wasp here and another red wasp over here, and thought, what in the world is going on? Because, uh, you know, it was just way too cold to be having wasps showing up. They're warm weather, weather critters. And uh, come to find out, what had happened was there was a wasp nest inside that cedar tree, lodged up in some of those limbs, and we, I just didn't notice it when I brought it in. And of course, bringing it in, you know, all of a sudden now it's springtime as far as the wasps are concerned, and they started coming out. So we had to uh, we had to wait until dark, because you know those rascals don't fly at night. So we waited until dark and uh, then turned, you know, turned all the lights out and went in there with some bug spray and took care of that and then uh, took that part down. But it's, it's amazing that I didn't notice that when we put up the tree and uh, when Carol and the kids were decorating the tree, they didn't notice it was there either. It was just sort of tucked under a little limb. But uh, we, we do develop our traditions in, uh, in interesting ways. And, of course, when we get married... Uh, then traditions begin to clash. Uh, there's some people who like to open gifts on uh, Sunday, uh, on not Sunday, on Christmas Eve, and there are other people who like to uh, open their uh, presents on Christmas Day. Uh, you know, some people who like to visit this set of parents, other people like to visit this set of parents, and uh, always a lot of clashes. But it's interesting, but we do have expectations when we go into this, and today... What we're going to be talking about are the expectations of, uh, of some of a couple of the principles at the time that Jesus was born. Now we're not going to be looking at Mary and Joseph yet. We'll, we'll pick up that part of the story next week. But we are going to look at an elderly couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth who uh, had no children at all. And then in the, uh, in really in the late years of their life, they had a supernatural visitation. In fact, a, uh, an, uh, 
you know, an extraterrestrial Gabriel, angel Gabriel visited them. And the result of that was that uh, God enabled them to have children. They had uh, at least a child. And they wind up having uh, John, who is known as John the Baptizer. So we want to look at that story. Now, before we look at the story, though, remember that from way back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that's where we see the first promise of a coming Redeemer. In fact, I put that in your notes there in the left-hand column. Notice, now this happened, oh, say about 4,000 B.C., something like that. Notice what's happened is that uh, obviously the man and the woman have been created by God. They've been put in the garden. There was a, it was a perfect environment. There was only one prohibition. And what was that prohibition? That, that's right. Don't eat any of the fruit that's, in the, that's from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and that's the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, of course, they did. And the result of that is what we term today as the fall. God came and uh, he, he uh, confronted the man and the woman and also the serpent, and in Genesis chapter 3, 15, uh, God is speaking directly to the old evil one who is there in the form of a serpent. And notice what he says. God says, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, the, the evil one, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed or your offspring and her seed or offspring. He shall bruise you, the serpent, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, if that's the only thing we had in the Bible, we'd look at that and say, what in the world could that possibly mean? But it's a reference to the fact that one day that the Redeemer would come and he would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent would smite him on the heel, and it's a picture of, uh, of, uh, of the attacks that the old enemy made uh, at Jesus and the fact that Jesus went to the cross. But that promise is reiterated throughout Scripture. And it's interesting to note that beginning at uh, Genesis 3.15, it's almost like this promise of a coming Redeemer is in, is, is in germ-type form. And then every time you read another promise, there's something else added. I, I mean, you just... For example, near the end of the book of Genesis, when Jacob was dying, some of you will remember this from our study, when uh, Jacob was dying, he gathered all of his sons around him. There are those 12 boys all standing around the bed. And he starts over here with Reuben, his firstborn, and he begins to talk about each one of those sons and what's going to happen in their life. And he gets to the fourth son, whose name is Judah, and he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah until the one to whom it is promised shall come. And it was a promise that Judah was going to be the kingly tribe. Well, we know that, uh, that from Judah, ultimately uh, from the tribe of Judah, there was another family that came, and, that fam and one of those families was, uh, was David. And, uh, and it was through David's line that ultimately the Lord Jesus uh, would come. That, that's, the, uh, that's the kingly line. And so God was saying, you know, he's just giving us a little bit more information every time. A uh, child will, uh, will, be, will be born. A son will be given. He's going to be from the tribe of Judah. He'll be from the family of David. 
uh, just more and more information. Notice uh, around 700 B.C., Isaiah wrote, For to us a child is born, that refers to Jesus' humanity. To us a son is given, that refers to his deity. And the government will be on his shoulders. What does this say about this boy, this child, this son? When it says government, what does that indicate? The government's going to be on his shoulders. What is it saying? Saying that he's going to rule. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Notice it's going to be a, uh, an eternal rule. It will never, ever end. And then finally, the, the passage that I put in here, the last prophecy in the Old Testament that relates to the coming of the Redeemer is actually one that relates to the coming of the forerunner of the Redeemer. And that's from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. This, again, around 400 B.C. Notice what Malachi... Remember that Malachi and Nehemiah were contemporaries. Uh, Malachi ministered during the administration of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah gives us a lot of political uh, insight gives us a lot of historical insight. And, uh, and what Malachi does is he gives us some, a lot of spiritual insight as to what was going on during the time of Nehemiah. And it's at that point that the Old Testament closes. Notice what it says in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. God says through Malachi, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And then... For the next 430 years, it's silence. God does not speak. There's nothing being said. Now, during that time of silence, um, are the priests still going through the motions? Absolutely. People are still offering sacrifices. They're doing all the things they've always done, just as the law of Moses requires, always going, doing exactly the same thing, exactly the same way. And the old priests, the members of the tribe of Levi, would know these promises real well. But what happens, you know, the, the tendency is to sort of put those things out of our mind and we just kind of take life for granted and we just deal with things as they come up on a day-by-day-by-day -day -day basis. And that's kind of what we see going on in around 4 to 6 B.C. when the New Testament opens and we're introduced for the first time in over 400 years to a biblical character. And this time, it's to an old priest named Zechariah who's married to a woman named Elizabeth. And Luke tells that story. The scene is in Jerusalem and down in Judea. That would be the southern part of the country. Notice beginning at verse 5 of Luke 1. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Notice, these, uh, they were not from the tribe of Judah. They were from the tribe, which tribe? The tribe of Levi. That was the third son. So both these people are from the same tribe. Doesn't mean they were cousins or anything, but it does mean that they were both uh, from that tribe. And incidentally, they were both from the family 
of, uh, of Aaron. And uh, remember, uh, Aaron was the one, if you were going to be a priest, you had to be from the family of Aaron. There were, there were many sons of Levi, but, uh, and they did a lot of things around the temple, uh, the tabernacle, subsequently the temple, the temple compound. But uh, if you were going to minister as a priest, you had to be a descendant of, uh, of the family of Aaron. Both these people are. It says, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Now, what's God about to do? God is about to invade their lives and God is about to upset the apple cart. Do you think that Zechariah and Elizabeth at their age, at their stage of life, had any idea that an angel named Gabriel was about to show up on the job where Zechariah was working and announced that they were finally going to have a baby at their age. You think either one of them were expecting that? Absolutely not. No, this just, it's out of the question that something like that's going to happen. But that's very often the way God works. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now here's, a, here's the situation. Uh, I won't draw a full picture up here on a, a full illustration on the board but we'll just leave it this way remember the temple the temple compound was essentially arranged like the old mobile worship center the tabernacle inside so there were lots of different courts the court of the gentiles the court of women the, the men's court all on the outside but in the temple proper there was a uh, there was a, a, a two-part enclosure back here and this uh, enclosure split into was uh, was split into by a uh, by a very thick curtain, four to six inches thick. The back section of this uh, this enclosure was known as the Holy of Holies. Prior to the time that many years prior to this, that Nebuchadnezzar had invaded, uh, the old Ark of the Covenant was back here in this area. But of course, Nebuchadnezzar had taken away the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark had never been restored. And so essentially, this is just an empty room back here in the temple. But you've got, uh, you've got this thick curtain. And then outside the curtain, on, uh, the, incidentally, the opening to the temple always faced to, faced to the east. Uh, on the north side of the temple, there was, a, there was a table that had 12 loaves of bread, and those loaves were changed every day. They represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And on the south side, there was this uh, big old lamp stand. And, of course, the, uh, the, the wicks had to be trimmed and the oil had to be replenished every day. That was on the south side of this, this outer area here. And then right in front of the curtain was something called the altar of incense. And twice a day, the priest who was on duty, in this case, it's Zechariah's turn to do it. Now, he's not the high priest. Remember, it's the high priest only who would go in through this curtain into the Holy of Holies. And that wasn't every day. That was only once a year. That was on the day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Zechariah's not the high priest. He's just a priest. And he's ministering. And what he's going to be doing this day is he's going to be burning incense. And this incense is a pleasant odor, and of course it would, it would pass through the curtain, and this was supposed to be something that, was, that would be pleasing to God. That's the way God had established it. 
So Moses, uh, I'm sorry, Moses. So Zechariah is uh, is inside here, and he's uh, he's burning this incense just as he's supposed to do. And you just got tons of people here on the outside, out here in these courts, just waiting for uh, Zechariah to get through. Because when he gets through, then he's going to come out and he'll lift both these hands and he'll pronounce the benediction. And everybody will go home and they'll all be very happy. And they've been doing this for weeks and months and years and decades and centuries. And they've been doing it exactly the same way. That's what Zechariah is doing. All, verse 10, all the worshipers were praying outside. And notice, all right, so Zechariah is inside. He's got that incense and it's burning. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Now, what do you think, what kind of prayer do you think that uh, he's talking about? What, what, what do you think Zechariah's been praying for? What do you imagine? He's been praying for a child. Apparently, now I don't know whether they've been whether they were still praying for a child or not, but apparently they certainly had been praying for a child at some point. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting, and and the reason I say it's hard to know whether they were still praying is because of the reaction, and we're going to read that in just a minute of Zechariah to this announcement from uh, from this angel. Again, do you think Zechariah was expecting an angel to show up that day? I don't think so. That's why he was so startled. You know, whoa, who is this in here with me? Nobody's supposed to be in here. And uh, notice, he says, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. What this means is that uh, John, who we know as John the Baptizer, now this is not the John who wrote the Gospel of John. This is a different John, John the Baptizer. Uh, what this means is that John is going to be under a permanent Nazarite vow. A Nazarite was a person who was totally dedicated to the Lord. Uh, you could take a temporary vow or you could take a permanent vow. Remember, Paul took a temporary vow. When you read the book of Acts, there's one point in there where Paul shaves his head having taken a vow. That was a Nazarite vow. It was a temporary vow. But there were certain individuals who would take this vow permanently where they would never drink anything that was fermented, where they wouldn't touch any dead bodies. There were a number of restrictions on them, and one of the restrictions was that they never, ever got a haircut. Now, there are three people in the Bible that the, that, that the Bible tells us fit that particular role. The uh, one of them... The first one is a guy whom we associate with Arnold Schwarzenegger types, lots of strength. Who would that be? Samson, that's right. Remember, he got in the doghouse when he you know, started talking about where his strength came from, and then Delilah sent for the guy, sent for the barber, and the barber came in and cut his hair off, and Samson lost his strength. 
The second person that the Bible talks about who was under this permanent Nazarite vow was also a judge. In fact, he was the last of the judges, and that was Samuel. And then the third person that the Bible, and the only, one, the only other one that I am aware of in all of the Bible that's under this permanent Nazarite vow was John the baptizer. So he's in good company anyway. It says, He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready. Notice this phrase. What is his purpose? The angel is saying, is telling Zechariah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So what the angel tells Zechariah is you and Elizabeth are going to have a son. You are going to have a son and you are going to name this child John. Many people will rejoice at his birth. And what's going to happen, he says, is that he is going to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now that would set off a series of bells and whistles, I guess, in the mind of Zechariah because Zechariah, as one who would really know the scriptures, would immediately come back and think of Malachi and think of the fact that, yes, the Redeemer's coming, but before the Redeemer comes, who comes before him? This forerunner, and that's who this person is. So if the forerunner is here, what's the inference? Messiah's coming. So that's a big deal. Now, Zechariah's still having to deal with all of this. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Now, what is it that, that Zechariah won't, what, what's his problem? Yeah, this is kind of tough. You know, look, you know, Miss Elizabeth and I, you know, we've we gotten kind of old now. And, uh, you know, we're just, we're just not going to be having babies. That's, uh, you got that right. Be careful what you pray for because uh, that's right. It's, uh, it's coming to pass here, it looks like. How can I be sure of this? In other words, I, want, I need some proof. I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. So the angel says, okay, you want proof? I'm going to give you some proof. Uh, but it wasn't the kind of proof that Zechariah was expecting. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. You want proof? Here's your proof. And what's the proof? You're mute. You can't talk. So all of a sudden, Zechariah can't say anything. Now I suspect... Now, I don't know. The Bible never says this, but I suspect that Elizabeth was probably the real happy person in all of this. You know how preachers are. All, they just talk all the time. Most of them have been vaccinated with a phonograph needle, and it has taken. And so they just talk all the time. So now for the next nine months, it's going to be real quiet, at least around, uh, around Zechariah's house. And Elizabeth is the one that's going to get to do all the talking. So, uh, meanwhile, it says, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. 
when he came out, he could not speak to them. Now, you and I know why. Obviously, they didn't know why. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, at least that's what they thought, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Now, notice, what's the congregation's expectation? They're just waiting for him to finish offering the incense before the Lord. They're waiting for him to come outside and lift both his hands and pronounce the benediction and then they can go on and say, you know, another great day, everything's okay. But when Zechariah came out, you know, he'd open his mouth and there was nothing there. And they realized something unusual had happened. It says in verse 23, when his time of service was completed, now notice it wasn't debilitating, he apparently kept on working. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Why taken away her disgrace? Why, why did she feel disgraced? Because she was barren. That's right, she couldn't have children. And in that day, many women had the idea and certainly that's what society um, encouraged there to think, them to think this way, is that if they couldn't have children, they must be under some the curse of God or something like something was wrong with them. And the Bible is re replete, obviously, with, uh, with women who were in this condition, and then God moved in miraculous ways and gave them, uh, gave them children. Now, it is interesting to note that at this point, the scene changes. Now, we're not going to look at, uh, we're not going to read this next little part in toto because uh, this is what we're going to be looking at in our next session. But notice this. Uh, we will read a verse or two. The scene shifts now. All right, so what we've, uh, what we've been looking at has been going on down in the south part, down in Judea where Jerusalem is located. And now all of a sudden the scene shifts up to the north to a city in Nazareth up in Galilee, up in the northern part. It says in the sixth month, now that doesn't mean in June, it means in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. All right, so now at this point, remember what it said in the verse, a couple of verses just prior to this, Elizabeth became pregnant for five months, remained in seclusion, and now it says in the sixth month. So now she's six months along, and it says, God sent the angel Gabriel uh, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And of course, what was he going to announce there? That Mary was going to have the Messiah. He just announced a few months earlier, Elizabeth is going to bear the forerunner, name him John, and now he's come to Mary and said, you are the one who is going to bear the Messiah and, of course, he tells him you are to name him Jesus. And we're going to talk about all those things in our, in our, uh, in our next uh, situation, in our next session. But uh, this is, Elizabeth now is six months along. One of the things that God, uh, that this angel does to encourage Mary is if you look in uh, there, again, in Luke chapter 1, down at uh, verse 36, Notice what the angel tells Mary to encourage her. Uh, says, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, 
and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. All right, so the angel leaves Mary, and we'll turn our little notes over here, and notice the very next thing, now the scene shifts again. Now it shifts back south to where Elizabeth is, and it tells us what Mary did. First of all, there in verse 39, it says, at that time, that's right at the time of the announcement, at that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. All right, so now, how far along is Elizabeth right now? Six months. And Mary's come to visit. She's, she's made her way down from Nazareth and come down to the hill country of Judea, and she's visiting her pregnant relative, Elizabeth. It says, when uh, Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, and this baby is named what? John, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb, that is John, leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Notice that even at this point, that John, who is to be the forerunner, when Mary enters the house and says, Oh, Elizabeth, I'm just so excited for you. This is just so great. I know you're six months along. As soon as Mary starts talking, the baby inside of Elizabeth just leaps and it's a real picture that, uh, that this forerunner, this one who would announce the Messiah, is aware that the mother, the one who will bear the Messiah, is right there in his presence. And in fact, there's, there's a real good chance, I'd say 99.9%, that the uh, child was already beginning to develop inside of Mary at this point. And I'll sh we'll see the reason for that, if not today, certainly in our next time. Now, what follows that is what's known as the Magnificat, and that's Mary's song of praise. Now, we're going to talk about that in our next session. Skip down to verse 56. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Now, what would happen three months uh, after Mary got there? Elizabeth's baby, John, would be born. That's right. So apparently, Mary stayed at least uh, probably up through the time that John was born, and then, uh, and then Mary went back home. She went back north up to, up to Nazareth. When it, was, uh, when it was time now, notice what, notice what it says in verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. Now, why do it on the eighth day? Why not do it on... That's right. You, don't, you know, in the hospital today, they put the little bands on the little boys, and, uh, you know, on the very first or the second day. But, but the law required that on day eight was the day that you circumcised little Jewish boys. 
And so that's the reason for that. Uh, again, it, it's a traditional thing. It's what the law required. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he's to be called John. They said to her, There's no one among your relatives who has that name. Now this part, to me, is one of the funniest things in this first chapter of John. It says, Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. Now, why do you make signs to someone? That's right, he couldn't speak, but supposedly he could hear. So why do you start making signs? You know, it's kind of... But you and I do this kind of thing all the time. We get around somebody who's got some sort of speech problem, uh, either they're mute or some sort of speech impediment, and we start doing, and you know, they may, they may hear perfectly well. It, it may be something that's happened to them, you know, uh, as a result of an accident or something like that. And we start saying, what would you like to eat and we start doing all this and and it's just almost ridiculous here i mean zachariah has not been able to speak for nine months but he can hear great apparently but they're making signs to him and it just seems to me like that it's just nutty to do that but it just it shows you luke is just really painting a, a picture here of the way we humans really are they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet. Notice, I'm sure when he asked for it, what he said was like that, made some motions. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Now notice what he didn't write. He didn't write, his, he is to be called John. His name will be John. No. What's the verb here? He wrote, his name is John. And as soon as he wrote that, another miraculous thing happened. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak. And probably if you and I hadn't talked in nine months, we'd have a lot of things to say to a lot of people. Not Zechariah. The first thing that came out of his mouth was praise to God. He began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these, all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Notice, now the community is developing some expectations. They're not sure what to expect, but this is so odd. I mean... Zechariah could speak and then all of a sudden he couldn't speak and now he's got this little got this baby in his old age and he names the baby John and there's nobody anywhere in his family history named John and as soon as he said that's what the baby's name is all of a sudden this guy just starts speaking and it's just honey it's just amazing to see all these things going on you could just you can just hear the talk in the community in in your in your mind's ear. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has redeemed his people? Has the Messiah been born yet? Not yet. In fact, 
How far along is Mary? At the max, how far along is Mary? Three months. That's right. So Mary, when she gets back to... What, when, when does a woman begin to, be, begin to show at least a little bit that she's pregnant? Yeah, around three to four months. So see, this is one of the reasons when she... And we'll talk about this next week. This is why when she... When, as soon as it's time for John to be born, she goes back up to Nazareth. And when she gets up to Nazareth there's a good chance that she's beginning to show just a little bit. She's three months along, and that's when Joseph says, uh, I need to put you away quietly. I don't know what you've been doing, but uh, I know that this one is not mine. And so, But we'll talk about that in detail next week. He's redeemed his people. The point is, in the mind of Zechariah, this forerunner has come, and as surely as he has come, it means that the Messiah is, uh, is well on his way. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as though through his holy, as he said, uh, through his holy prophets of long ago. Notice, John is from, John is a member of the tribe of Levi. He hasn't raised up a redeemer out of uh, Levi and Aaron and Elizabeth and Zechariah's family. The redeemer is going to come out of the tribe of Judah, out of the family of David. So when Zechariah says this, he's talking about this one named Jesus who is uh, about six months away from being born. He goes on to say, uh, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. And now he, he looks specifically into John's eyes and he begins to talk to John, this little baby. He says, And you, my child will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him, to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And, of course, John grows up. And I want you to notice in that left-hand column, I put it under the topic, Echoes from the Baptizer. John has now grown up, and he's 30 years old at least. And remember, he's six months older than Jesus. Notice what, what John says in John chapter 1. Remember, John, the baptizer, was baptizing around the, uh, around the Dead Sea and that at Jordan River southern part of the Jordan River near where it, uh, where it empties into the Dead Sea. It says, uh, and John is down there, got a crowd around him, and he's doing what he was called to do. He says, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How did lambs cover up the sin of the people of Israel 
back in the Old Testament days. There was only one way, and that was by dying. That's right, by shedding their blood. You're exactly right. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Isn't that an interesting, interesting phrase? He said, here's someone who comes after me, and he surpassed me. He's greater than I am because he was before me. Well, wait a minute. Jesus is going to be born six months after John was born. How could Jesus be before John? That's because Jesus is the eternal God. He is God who became flesh. He is God who has always existed. He existed before John. He existed before Zechariah. He existed before Elizabeth. This is a reference John is making to the deity of this person, the deity of none other than Jesus. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. And it was at this point that some of uh, John's own disciples began to follow Jesus rather than staying with John. We know that Andrew did that. We know that, uh, that uh, John, the writer of, uh, of the Gospel of John, who was, a, uh, who was a, a disciple of John the baptizer, both them started following, uh, following Jesus. And in this second passage from John chapter 3, by the, by shortly after John uh, Jesus was baptized, remember he was tempted 40 days in the desert, and then his ministry really began to take off for about three years or so. And his ministry started blossoming, and lots of folks were gathering around Jesus. I mean, obviously, Jesus was performing miracles, and people were attracted to that. They were attracted to his, <clears throat> to his message. Excuse me, let me take a sip of water. I can feel a cough coming on. And, uh, and some of the people were, some of John, the baptizer's disciples, were saying, doesn't it bother you that Jesus is getting a bigger crowd than we're getting? Notice John's response, because it really relates to this whole issue. Verse 26, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, now who's he talking about? Jesus. Well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. Then notice the last statement. He, Jesus, must become greater. I, the baptizer, must become less. Notice, John was not threatened at all by what seemed like the great success of Jesus because what was John's purpose? John's purpose was to point to the one who comes and then to get out of the way 
And that's exactly what he was doing. It's easy for us in these days, especially, uh, you know, the closer we get to Christmas, is we find ourselves sometimes just kind of going through the motions and we find ourselves being interrupted by a lot of things. You know, well, we've always done it this way and then all of a sudden something happens and kind of louses that up and we view it as an interruption and sometimes we get frustrated and angry because it's not going the way we think. I think it's, uh, it's probably a good idea when these interruptions come, and they will come, to view them perhaps as an opportunity from God to minister to some people in a way that we didn't anticipate that we were going to. Because that's what we see in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth and certainly in that of John. Uh, we'll talk more about this in our next session and look specifically at Mary and at Joseph. Uh, may God help us to apply these truths to our life and may our expectation be for the return of the Lord Jesus in power and glory as he's promised. Father, thank you again so much for your kindness and mercy and grace and goodness. Thank you for this marvelous story. Lord, it, uh, it tugs at our hearts and it makes us chuckle at times as we see some of the things in there that just remind us of ourselves. And yet, Lord, it also convicts us of our sinfulness because it's so easy for us to just go through the motions and to dismiss the fact that you are at work always. Lord, help us to be sensitive to you and to be sensitive to your spirit. And the closer we get to the, this season of the year, when we say we're celebrating the very birth of Christ, but we get all involved in all of the activities of You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. Write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.